This is Adrian Warnock's Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, hi, uh, my name's Adrian Warnock and I'm here with Ed Stetzer. So, um, Ed, thanks for joining us, first of all. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to meet you. I've uh, been a great enjoyer of your blog, and uh, good to meet you in person, or at least via video in person. Yeah, it's great. And we literally haven't spoken before for more than a few seconds, have we, in a couple of emails. So it's one of the things I always want to do is try and pick the brains of other people like yourself. And certainly if I read your biography, it sounds like you're, you know, you've got quite, a, quite an impressive resume there, uh, Ed. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, you're very gracious. I, I don't know about that, but uh, but I would tell you, I, I, I love the blog. If there's, you know, if you measure leadership by influence, uh, your blog, several others. Now, I did confuse you once with, uh, with uh, who did I confuse you with? Uh, David Wayne. Uh, didn't you guys have that people confusing you all the time? And so I confused you once with him, and he did correct me. Um, but, yeah. uh, but just very, very insightful interviews, very insightful uh, dialogue that you do. So glad wow. to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, like I say, one of the one of the things that I think people enjoy perhaps the most that I do is is trying to, uh, you know, pick the brains of other people. And uh, unfortunately, uh, as you discovered after you agreed to doing this, I am actually a psychiatrist, so you want to be a little bit careful here, uh, because you know my career right. was I'll be my best behavior. My career was all about <laughs> trying to get people to set themselves at their ease and uh, sit back, relax, and tell me their deep darkest secrets. So, you know, if if we have to press well, pause, I'm ready. Or I'm ready. Yeah, your assumption may be, you know, I may have been to a lot of psychiatrists, so your assumption may be I'm unprepared. So let's go ahead. I'm ready. Let's jump in. <laughs> Excellent. But I also hear you've done quite a few interviews as well. I know, for example, you interviewed Mark Dever, didn't you? And uh, that's always a challenge, isn't it? I did. Well, Mark and I were at a conference called the Whiteboard Sessions. And, um, you know, to be honest, I, 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 um, I speak with Mark in some settings. We, we've spoken some, at some conferences. We've taught together. And I speak at a lot of uh, contemporary church conferences. And so it was just unusual to have Mark at that conference. I, I kind of told Mark it was like, it's like, it's like your wedding. You have your parents' friends. You have your church friends. You have your school friends. I never really met. And so Mark's a friend, and many of those pastors there were friends. And I just I was interested to see how they get along. And um, and I thought and Mark is always so gracious and um, and he did a great job in the interview. We talked about his his talk at Together for the Gospel and talked about the issues of the gospel and the kingdom. And I guess it's gotten a lot of play. I think almost four thousand people now have have downloaded. I think it's about uh, five times more than any of the interviews. But we had a, we had a good conversation and and uh, we have a relationship beforehand on these issues that enable us to talk them through. Excellent. All right, now before we really get stuck in, I just want to make one point on a slightly humorous note, and that's this. We are only able to do this really because of Max, aren't we? Let's be honest, this quality of video that we've got here, you could not get currently on a PC, I don't think, could you? Oh, I, you know, I will tell you that I am impressed. Having, having been one who has resisted the Mac revolution, it's becoming increasingly difficult with tools like this. So perhaps I am being weaned off my, Mac, uh, my PC and brought to the dark side, but so I'm not quite there yet. You're not quite there yet, which is interesting, actually, because, I mean, people, you know, missiology has got this kind of hip, kind of cool, trendy, designer-type feel to it. And you kind of I, – I saw you as a Mac person, Ed, and I discovered that you're not, or at least not yet – no, well, you know, I'm countercultural for the gospel, and okay. so I'm kind of being countercultural on this on this Mac PC issue. And I just figured, you know, to me, I remember all of you Mac type people in the in the 80s and the 90s with the VHS Beta Wars, and you'd always say, well, Beta's better, Beta's better, and and, and you know, then I always say it's got four heads on it rather than two, and now there's no Beta left, and so I'm just not sure I want to jump and buy a beta machine when VHS is still working so well. Ah, yeah, 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 but is it working well? That's the first question. That's How many times question. a day have you had to reboot your computer? You know what I'm saying? So did you have questions about psychiatry? Yeah, or... yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> but, but, but the other thing as well, I think the one thing that will cl clinch it for you is you can actually use a Mac as a Windows machine. So there you go. You can dual boot it. Really? Or you can even I do what I do, that. which is I actually boot it up. I have this... Um, program that allows me to boot Windows within the Mac environment. So and I only oh. use that really for the Logos Bible software because they are they have got a beta out for Mac, but only a beta. So that's the one thing that I mean that's the thing that stopped me. I've actually been a PC user until quite recently. Uh, but it, and the Logos was the one thing that stopped me from making the jump. But uh, um, when I heard about Parallels, I thought, oh, let's give it a go. And, and so far, we've now got three Macs in our family, I'm afraid, because wow. my kids keep fighting for it and stuff like this. It's a nightmare. You know, That's when we were PCs, it, we would be like trying to encourage them to use it. But now it's like we can't get them off. It. 
But anyway, you are we, you are a mag evangelist. I am indeed. But you, um, what is this mission thing? First of all, because some people just think it means being hip and trendy. By the way, I should just point out John Piper has a Mac. No, oh, that's true. That's true. A good so point. He's Not more trendy than you, but 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 he has a Mac. He he can't get a TV, but he can get a Mac. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, what is the, what the is this missiology thing? thing? What is it? I mean, what's it about? Because there'll be some people watching this who may not even really know what it is. Uh, they might have some idea that it's vaguely linked to emerging stuff and, you know, may, maybe seeker sensitive. Or, what is it, you know? Well, let's, let's define some terms. Missiology, which is a specific question you asked, is the study, the discipline of understanding missions. And so, it, it, it really encompasses a lot of areas like um, like uh, cross-cultural understanding, like anthropology. Um, this is something that, that has developed as a discipline over the centuries, more specifically as an academic discipline at the beginning of the last century. But people have asked the questions, if we're going to take the gospel and communicate it well, uh, how do we uh, maybe deconstruct some cultural uh, trappings of the gospel so that we communicate the gospel, the, the, the didache and the kerygma of, that needs to be communicated, not the cultural trappings. We don't need to teach people in in, uh, in East Asia Western hymnody. We need to teach them the gospel. And so, so missiology helps us with that discipline. Uh, missional is a term that's that's you know also quite the rage and, and is used in different settings. Uh, you mentioned emerging church settings, but really, I mean, most denominations now are talking about that. Many evangelicals, uh, Tim Keller, others, um, uh, Mark Dever and I talked a little bit about it as well. Uh, you know, missional. The idea of being missional. It's it, it root takes some ideas from missiology, but it's really built on the mission of God, acting and thinking like missionaries, focused on the mission of God uh, for the God's agenda. It, it really is a is a reemphasis on the fact that we are sent by God. Now, God Himself, by by His nature, is a sender. He is, to quote Francis Dubose's book, He is God who sends. And so, when we are like God, we reflect His character, and we are both sent and the sender. We we continue to to push towards proclaiming the good news, the name and fame of Jesus, among those people who are far from him. So it's, missional is, is a similar word to missiology, but different. My, my PhD is in missiology, and that's, I mean, it's a classical discipline. You know, I, I, I say history and anthropology and all those things, but missional is more of a, uh, of a posture and approach to ministry. Okay, so what does that look like uh, for Ed Stetzer then? I mean, it, you know, you, you've been involved in a few things, I think lots of church plants and all this kind of stuff. What, 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 just in a nutshell, what's your ministry look like to this point? Well, you know, from, a, from the very beginning, I guess I've been involved in church planning. I planted my first church among the urban poor in Buffalo, New York in 1988. And, uh, and for us, we, we sold our, 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 most of our stuff, just kept a couch and some books, and we, we moved into the inner city of Buffalo, New York among the urban poor and began to plant a multicultural, multiracial church there. We wanted to uh, tell the gospel, but we wanted to also be and do the gospel. So our focus was to be, do, tell the gospel. Um, you know, we, 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 we serve the hurting, but we serve the hurting in the name and for the fame of Jesus. And so we, we, we did that and planted our first church. I, I planted churches then in uh, Pennsylvania. I was a professor at Southern Seminary for a few years, teaching some of the things we'd learned along the way. And now I've been doing research for the last few years. I'm now the director of research at Lifeway, uh, Lifeway Research. That's interesting. So um, the first thing you mentioned there was about cross-cultural churches. And, and uh, back yeah. in 1988, that can't have been terribly common, I don't think, really, was it? It's well, actually, you know, church, now, church planning back then. Yeah, church planning in 1988, everyone kind of asked me, could I, could I not find a real job? You know, church planning is now big now. But back then, uh, people were beaten on church planners like a low-hanging pinata on Cinco de Mayo. I mean, folks were just, they, they, they thought they were couldn't get real jobs, were splitting the church. But we went to an area where there were no, well, I guess that's not true. There were 200,000 people in our neighborhood and four evangelical churches, and I thought there were enough lost people to go around. So nobody, nobody complained when we planted a church where nobody else wanted to go. And so, yeah, well, it certainly wasn't in vogue then, but, you know, we just believe that church planting is, I mean, when they, when they received the Great Commission, uh, the Great Commission is given there in Matthew 28, the way the disciples responded was by planting churches. Hmm. And so how could we not respond that way? Now, I do believe in church renewal, and I wrote a book on that. Um, I, I believe you know it's, it's more than that. But I think the church has lost its church planting edge. Uh, and I think to some degree it's regaining it. There's a, there's a higher enthusiasm for church planting, but I think it needs to be on the heart and in the plans of evangelical churches and, and denominations across the world. Yeah, so, um, so for you, really, it's about going, 
somewhere where either there isn't much church or there's no church at all, starting something new uh, and seeing seeing growth. And you're, you're aiming, what, for, for people to become Christians or transfer growth or a bit of both? Uh, in church planting, that, our goal would be primarily to reach those who are far from Christ, those who are not believers. Um, you, know, you do pick up some Christians along the way who want to be a part of something of that sort, but we worked hard to uh, see people presented with the gospel and and to respond who who were not Christians. Now, you know, I got to tell you, I live now here in the states in a place called Tennessee, and it's very different. You know, here there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who don't go to church. This is most people around here are de-churched. Where I planted churches in New York and Pennsylvania, they were unchurched, and so there is a difference in that culture. And it's, it's different. Some ways more difficult. Some ways less difficult. Um, but my church planting has always been primarily, well, I guess we planted in Atlanta too. Just I planted a church a couple of years ago in Atlanta, uh, which is more of a, a mixture. But yeah, my, my hope is is that churches that are planted are not, um, you know, just taking people from other churches. I, I, I don't see the, I don't see God's heart breaking so that we might steal sheep. I see Jesus looking over Jerusalem and saying they're like sheep without a shepherd. And I think ultimately you plant churches, see people come to Christ, and you'd be the shepherd of those people. So it's interesting just looking at some of the terminology. I mean, you're talking about being missional. You're talking about church planting. Um, now, if I if I'm right about this word mission, doesn't it come from the same root word as as the translation in the Latin for the word apostle? Is that right? Have I got that right? That mission is is sort yeah, of the, Latin yeah, for apostle. This, a pastor. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, certainly there's a sense where uh, apostolos. The idea is is that we are sent. Yeah. As a, there's a sentness to the to the to the character that's there. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's good to tie those together. Uh, the reason I'm asking that, and I don't know how familiar you are with sort of movements like uh, the one I'm a part of, New Frontiers, which has, uh, you know, also been sort of planting churches. We often use the word apostolic these days, and I, and I'm kind of hearing a lot about mission, and I'm wondering if there certainly seems to be some overlap between that. I just wonder how you see that yourself in terms of this concept of being apostolic, with a small a, of course, not a big one. Yeah. Well. You know, I'm not a, I, I use phrases like the apostolic impulse or apostolic focus, and I use those. Um, you know, in my in my in my understanding of scripture, and, and probably in my faith tradition, we don't have uh, the fivefold office. I don't know if you use that terminology in your movement, but we don't we don't think that we we kind of see two normative offices in the local church: pastor, elder, and uh, as one, and then deacon as the other. But, but so for me, I, I do believe in the apostolic impulse. I believe in the, uh, in the apostolic gifting, but I don't see it as authoritative as sometimes people in, in more Pentecostal, charismatic, or third wave movements do. People like Peter Wagner are kind of way out there on how authoritative it is. I wouldn't be at all comfortable there. But I do know that there are, there are movements like yours and some others who hold a five-fold office. And, and what I would say is, even though I don't hold all five offices, I would want to have that apostolic impulse to be evident in the life of my ministry in my church and my and my movement as well. So, so we I write about apostolic things, but I don't necessarily look for uh, modern day apostles in the same authoritative sense as some do. I, I think modern day apostles, if we use that term, um, with little a rather than big a, would be uh, church planners and missionaries who are engaging in apostolic ministry in that setting. Yeah, okay. And so for you, um, what would you say would be the things that would characterize a successful church plant? Is it really a lot to do with that leader, that apostolic leader, if you like, or missional leader, whatever you want to call him, who starts the church? Is that one of the kind of key things, would you say? Or are there other factors? Well, I think, no, we've done some research. People can, uh, i got a whole section of research uh, on, on the website on that. And I think leadership is a big part of that. I mean, the this is why... When you plan a church outside of a house church, but when you plan a church using the more typical means today, you you need to have a church planter who is very uh, very gifted and called. Church planting is not something everyone can do. You can be a great pastor and not be an effective church planter. Matter of fact, you can be an effective church planter, not necessarily be a good pastor as well. But I think the the idea here is that there are certain characteristics we call those um, uh, behavioral characteristics, and we actually have an assessment for them. And different, most movements in, in really in the West now take church planners that, that are going to be vocational church planners, and they put them through an assessment to say, are these characteristics present? Do you have the ability to cast a vision? Do you have the ability to build relationships with the unchurched? Do you have the ability to uh, to gather people to a cause and you know to recruit people for new things? So so there are certain 
um, characteristics that are there that we search for, and those do make up you know what makes a church planting leader are those characteristics. Uh, and that's not all. You know, that we, we, there's so much more. There's there's you know there's godliness. There's the first Timothy three qualifications, but there are certainly some characteristics that we look for for church planters. Right. Okay. And so, um, so Ed, tell me, are you part of, this sounds very similar to what they do in Acts 29. Are you actually part of Acts 29 or related to them in some way? Or what's the deal there? Is it the same assessment they use? Because I've, I've heard yeah, them talk I, about that. Yeah, I, I've spoken, I used to be on the board of Acts 29. Uh, not now, uh, but I, I speak at the events uh, when they ask me to, and I'm, I'm happy to pitch and train some of the, the uh, X-29 church planners and, and pastors. So so that's my main connection there is uh, speaking to advanced, serving as a, if they have questions, I'm glad to help any way I can. But their assessment then is very similar to the assessment you do, is it? Or is it the same? or Because they do an assessment. Oh, well, well. I, I help them with it. So, I mean, the assess and the and the assessments uh, have largely become major, sort of a, there's sort of a, a, a standard way a guy named Charles Ridley developed a system back in the 80s that Acts 29 uses, my movement uses, most movements use. Uh, the Presbyterian Church of America has a little different system, but it's still got some similarities. So the ideas are, are pretty much the same. Uh, most assessments look the same, and it makes sense because you're looking for the same characteristics. And so you end up with similar uh, you know, tools to help find those characteristics, and so those assessments would be the same. And again, you'd get you could find great people who love Jesus and who fit all the First Timothy three qualifications, who'd be tremendous pastors, who cannot plant churches, not because they're not good preachers and good leaders, but because they don't have the entrepreneurial gifts that are often necessary. Uh, your movement might call them more the apostolic gifts that are more necessary in the church planting. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So. Moving away a little bit from leaders, how can we make sure, and I guess that is partly a question to leaders, but how can we make sure that um, ordinary church members get a hold of this whole thing about being missional? How can you turn a church from being quite inward focused and, you know, like a little club perhaps to actually going out there into the world and, and, and seeing people become Christians? Well, that's part of what, one of my concerns is that, uh, you know, because I've written on church planning, I've written on church evaluation, I've written on missional stuff. And, uh, and, and have found largely that, I think pastors get that, but they've struggled to communicate that to their congregations. Um, one, of the, one of the ways, you know, I, and I, I didn't come to talk necessarily plug the book, but I will mention that we have a new book that's specifically for that. It's called Compelled by Love, The Most Excellent Way to Missional Living. So it's a book on missional living written at the layperson's level. We're doing a blog tour right now uh, with it. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's basically the focus is, is how, because of what Christ has done on the cross, how are we compelled by love? That's that Second Corinthians passage. And my hope is, I mean, I think ultimately, if 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 all pastors do is get excited about it, and churches don't live different and engage lostness and hurting people, then I think ultimately all we've done is created a new word that doesn't lead to congregational change. Yeah. So, have you got any tips uh, that you could sort of say in a nutshell as to how we yeah. can do this practically? Oh, sure, sure. I think first and foremost, it has to be a, a sense of changing of agenda. Um, you know, in First Second Corinthians there, which is the theme we kind of built the book around, it says that they, you know, they should no longer live for themselves. Um, and so I think it has to be no longer about my preferences. Um, churches, churches will fight to the death over their preferences. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that most churches in the West, you could come into a church and preach heresy, and the next week, they'd, if you had a video and were funny, they'd invite you back and make you the pastor. Um, but if you change the order of service, you'd have to get in order of the U-Haul truck and start packing your things. So people will, will, will be very passionate about, well, the wrong things. They're passionate about their preferences. They're not passionate about the things of God. And so I think it's got to start with a focus on it's not about me. It, it's, it's ultimately about God, his agenda, his glory, his honor, and his mission. And so I think first and foremost, it starts with a change of preferences. Secondly, I think a change of attitude. If we go back to that 2 Corinthians 5 passage, it says we no longer know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we've known Christ in a purely human way, we no longer know him like that. Then it talks about, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. I think the new life in Christ needs to, leads to a new perspective of people. I think we need to remember that the lost are not the enemy. They're prisoners of war. 
And so ultimately, we've got to see them as people that God loves. Um, we've got to see them as people that God has sent us on a mission to, to reach out to. And so I think ultimately it's changing the view of how we see people. And thirdly, I think ultimately it, it, there, there has to be a new reflection on the cross. The whole Second Corinthians 5 passage ends with uh, the imputation passage, that he who knew no sin uh, became sin for us. God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. I think when we get what took place on the cross when, in Jesus' uh, death and as sin was imputed to him, so righteousness might be imputed to us, I think when we get that, it leads to all the rest. We're compelled by love. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. It, it changes everything. And so I do think a stronger recovery of cross-focused ministry is essential to that as well. So it's three, three bullet points, did you say? Those are three bullet points. There you oh, go. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, yeah, it's interesting that you should sort of um, emphasis so much on, on the cross and the atonement, because I know, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of people today in the sort of wider evangelical movement, if you like, um, who would who would want to try and minimize that. You know, what would you say yeah. to someone who says, well, you know, getting into a fuss about exactly how Jesus saved us is really not very helpful for the mission. It's not very helpful for getting people in, you know? Yeah. Well, I think I think there's... You know, some would say, and I think rightfully, that the only that the penal substitution atonement is not the only picture of the atonement we see in Scripture. But I got to tell you, in my, in my experience, all right, I would I would agree with that. I would agree that that's not the only picture. I get that. I don't know any serious theologian who thinks that's the only picture in Scripture. And, uh, and but but here's what I would say: is I don't hear that preached a lot. Uh, maybe in certain circles, but, but I, I don't think we need less preaching on the penal substitutionary atonement. I think we need more. Uh, now, do I think that we need more on the atonement as well? Yes. I mean, I think ultimately it, it doesn't have to be just that. We need to communicate, but it has to be that. I think Mark Dever's article in, uh, in Christianity Today, I, I was one of the panelists for the Evangelical Press Association. I, I, I think I got to select him as the, as the article, on his, on his article on the atonement was excellent. Now, again, so what I would say is, real simply, yes, I get that's not the only picture in Scripture. And yes, I think we ought to teach every picture in Scripture. But I don't think we need less preaching on the cross. I think we need more preaching on the cross. And the aspects of the cross that talk about how we are freed from and forgiven for sin are central and essential to that. And how Jesus did that is central and essential to that. And so, yes, yeah, so I, I would be on the very much the other side of that issue. I, and maybe it's my own, you know, I'm, I, I now live in, in Southern evangelicalism, and, uh, and I've never lived here before. I was born and reared in New York City, and I was reared Catholic, and this is that I planted in New York and Pennsylvania. But it seems to me that in, among contemporary churches, among traditional churches, among emerging churches, they all, they all not, not all, many of them in all different streams, are still preaching the gospel of sin management. It's just different. Um, and, you know, in some churches, they, it's, you know, here are five ways to have a happy life and, you know, three ways to raise obedient pets and, you know, and, and, you know get stress out of your life. Uh, in, in some churches, it's don't do this, don't do that. They're preaching against, you know, this and that sin, and there's still behavior management. And in other churches, they're preaching against, you know, broken society and how we need to serve the hurting. And, and, and I think there's something, I'm not... You know, there's some, there's some things we can learn from all of those conversations, but ultimately all of them boil down to sin management, behavior management, and I think ultimately it's not about behavior management. It's about a bloody cross and an empty tomb, and because of that, the gospel is not something I preach when I get saved. The gospel is something that saves me every day, and so I think that's the part that I think that getting to the cross-shaped life impacts everything, including the way we live today. And so, again, I'd like more preaching on the cross, uh, but maybe not the preaching that sometimes I hear. The preaching I sometimes hear is it's the cross, so you got to get saved. That's the language that you use, and sometimes we're... And, and, and it is that, but it's not just the cross and you're saved, and then you just work hard the rest of your life, so when you die, you go be with Jesus. It's the cross, I die daily. I, I mean this, brothers, he said. I die, I die every day. It's the, it's the cross and the cross-shaped life that is manifest in my Christian walk, not just my the beginning of my Christian walk, but my whole Christian walk. Very interesting. Very interesting. But you're getting me. To, you're getting me to preach now, brother. And so I, I didn't mean to do that. I'm gonna. 
I'm gonna, it's hard for me to preach to a Mac, so I'm going to pull back a little bit. If it was a PC, <laughs> I could do it. Yeah, no, it's good. it's good. It's good. Yeah, so I mean, I think you're right, and it's it's. I guess what you're saying really is that is an issue worth fighting over. I mean, there are I guess some issues that are not worth fighting over, but the atonement would seem like it is one that is worth fighting over. From what you're saying, pretty essential. Yeah, I do. I do think. I think to me, when I think of my Jude three, you know, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. This is the atonement. I mean, I don't know how we can get there. Now, I, I do want to listen to voices that that remind us that it's more yeah. than. But 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 and, and I think they're okay. But if, if if in the process of saying it's more, they don't want to talk about that. I think they're leaving a key part of the scriptural teaching on yeah. what the atonement is. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, it's a big deal over here, and I guess it's a big deal over in the U.S. as well, isn't it? That one. Well, it, it, it's not. I, I know it's a bigger deal right now in in your circles because of some of the you know the meetings that have been changed and all this sort of thing. Um, I would say here it's a growing issue. I, I think if. Um, if the questioning leads to denial at a higher basis, I think it'll become a bigger deal here. To me, it's more of a fringe issue. Many people right now are just saying, well, it's more than that. All right, I get that. There are few who are saying it's not that. But those, I would say, have left biblical orthodoxy. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, um, so what do you think are the real challenges facing the church at the moment then, but in the West? Yeah, I, I think ultimately we're in a season of decline, and I think that's difficult. Um, now, of course, there are some bright spots there in Britain, um, and uh, some interesting studies recently have come out to kind of talk about the church there. Uh, but here in the States, we're, we're in a rather protracted period um, of struggle. Uh, if, the, uh, if you count Eastern and Western Europe together, the North America is the only continent in the world where the church is not growing. And so we're seeing some of the, I think, the effects of... of uh, you know, of, of secularization, of the privatization of religious expression and belief. So all these things are beginning to roost, if you will. Um, I, I do see some encouraging spots. I, I think ultimately the church is trying to figure it out right now. I think this is why we have all these incredible diversities the way we do church. If you ask a, a pastor today in the States, you know, how do you do church? They'll say, well, we're a, you know, we're a purpose-driven, cell-based, contemporary, seeker-sensitive, uh, you know, Methodist church or or you ask another one, it's, you know, we're a missional, incarnational community of Christ followers sent on a mission of societal transformation. Um, it's like, you know, they, they speak two different languages. Well, I think you have all these models because people are trying to figure out how can we do what God's called us to do. And so I, that impulse to, to, to figure that out right now, I think, kind of speaks to our current situation. We're struggling. We're looking for answers. Uh, I'm about to attend the meeting of the largest Protestant denomination in America, my own my own denomination, Southern Baptists, uh, on Monday, and we'll we'll talk about you know how do we as a denomination that last year declined uh, in membership for the first time in a long time how how do we get refocused on on God's mission, and so I think that's 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 the kind of the state of North American evangelicalism. Of course, the mainliners are doing their own thing, but but evangelicalism. Is struggling. You know, I, I've been a fan and I've kind of endorsed probably in a few places the work of the Gospel Coalition, trying to, you know, how do, how do we again recenter on the gospel and what the gospel is? And there are other movements to do that as well. We we had some manifestos here. We've had some statements, um, uh, but I think that kind of speaks to the, the the current situation. And and we need to say this we believe. We need to say for this we contend. Yes, there are some things that we differ on, it, and there are. Even even methodological issues are dividing churches, and there are some things we differ on. But but we've got to have a common sense as we as we move ahead to reach a lost world, or else it'll just continue to decline following the current path, and and that's certainly not encouraging. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are individual churches that are doing very very well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you see you see you see these bright spots, these islands of strength, and and one of the things I like to do, I want to hold them up as examples. And, and learn from each other because uh, I think there are some there are some bright spots. Here's the thing: I, someone I wrote an article recently for Faith and Family magazine, and it was the state of the church. And I, I was kind of I, I talked about you know I have a lot of statistics. I run the research department, so I talked about a lot of statistics. Then at the end I said, but I'm not discouraged. Well, there's a couple of reasons I'm not discouraged. One is I see God doing powerful work through some churches, and secondly, I read the last chapter of the book. I know how it turns out. So if we're not faithful, God still is faithful. And there will always be people and churches that want to reach lost people, want to be faithful to God and his word. And I'm just, I want as many churches as possible to do and be that kind of church. Do you, do you see anything specific about some of these churches? I mean, that, that, 
that we could do well to emulate in other churches? You know, what's their secret, do you think? Well, secrets, secrets. Um, you know, I see an increasing number of churches that are uh, asking, uh, I, I think the, the theological has to frame the beginning of the conversation. They're, they're asking, what does God want from us in the way we live, in what we believe, and how we relate to those who are far from him? And so I see that, and, and I'm encouraged by that. I think we're seeing among young pastors a uh, higher level of, of, of interest in, in uh, what the Bible says about certain things, how do I teach it. So I think I'm encouraged by that. Um, and then, but I think the challenge is, is there's always seems to be this pendulum between the theologically minded and the often the evangelistically effective. Yeah. I really wish we could wed those things together. Um, I, I think ultimately they can learn from each other. This is why I was encouraged with that Deborah interview mentioned earlier, is that you had some theologically minded people and some people who are reaching and uh, a lot of people together, and I think we could learn from each other. Yeah. I, I think these streams are not. They need to cross, because I think ultimately there's many in the contemporary church movement who are doing great work, but also can learn some, maybe some talk about some issues of, of what the church is and how the church functions and what biblical evangelism looks like and how do we engage culture without becoming, losing ourselves in the culture. And there's many who are very theologically minded who, wow, they just need to get out and maybe uh, see what it means to engage culture and to be countercultural, but to be countercultural by the way you live, not the, by the way you look and what you sing. And I think ultimately, people have confused, in some of the theologically minded world, they have confused um, holiness is not separation from sinners, it's separation from sin. And they have confused the, the tools of you know, culture, music, dress, things of that sort, with holiness as well. And I, and I think I'm concerned that many theologically driven people end up only talking to themselves. You know, it was, it was Spurgeon who, who said that any movement that, he gave the example of, uh, you know, that, that some will say that the Methodists and the revivalists will, will shake the, the trees and, 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 and drive out the birds, but some of the birds will nest in our nests. And Spurgeon said, you know, any movement that grows by the actions of those that it condemns writes its own destruction. And I think ultimately, theologically minded churches do not need to be, be churches that just fill up with Christians of people who say, you know, I got reached in this church, but now I want more. I'd like to see both. I want it all. Isn't that what you said on one of your blogs? It is. I want it all. I remember that. And I want it all. I want theologically minded, culturally engaged churches that are reaching lost people. And here's how I, I define it. I say, and by the way, I know that when you said you want it all, we're talking about something a little different. Uh, you, you're, <laughs> but, but here's what I want. Well, I, 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 want I, would, I would have included all this in it, that's for sure. Okay, all right. I want biblically faithful, yeah. culturally relevant, counterculture communities for the gospel and the kingdom. If I, that's my, mm -hmm. that's what I, biblically faithful, culturally relevant, counterculture communities for the gospel and the kingdom. Mm -hmm. If we can bring that together, I think it would be a powerful, powerful thing. And I think that's something we, we need to learn. We need to have conversations like you saw with Mark and, and other places and start listening, you know, rather than throwing bombs at each other. And I've seen a lot of bombs thrown by a lot of bloggers, you know, mm. and a lot of, even not just bloggers, but megachurch pastors who, who just throw out these provocative statements that I think cause division, don't promote mutual learning from each other. Yeah, no, that's right. So um, what about preaching then? What, what place do you see for preaching within all this? Because... I think sometimes there are some people who think, oh, that's just culturally irrelevant now, you know, it's an old form. But then there are other people who stick to a very sort of rigid form of, of preaching that almost feeds into what, some of what you were saying about the theological thing and becomes an inward looking almost. What, what, what do you think preaching should look like in these kind of communities you're looking for? Well, I think you can't get beyond, and you shouldn't want to get beyond, the, 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 the importance of preaching as laid out in the New Testament. I mean, the foolishness of preaching, um, we see that just over and over again uh, described, and at times also prescribed, that biblical preaching and, and teaching would be central in the life of the church. So I'm not one who would say, well, you know, we don't, that's not uh, important. Um, we just, you know, the community is the sermon, I've heard one pastor say, or, or the sermon is just one part of what we do. I, I think it's, it's essential. I, I do think that a lot of people will fight over forms of preaching yeah. that perhaps I might not make that full fight. I mean, I, I don't think that I want to fight and say this is the only way biblical preaching can get done. Uh, for me, here's what it boils down to. If it's, if it's, it's biblical preaching, 
if it's conveying the intent of the scriptures in a way faithful to the way the scriptures convey it. And therefore, if you know, if, if I'm looking for five things I read in psychology today, and then getting you know scripture verses out of context to support them, you know that's not that's not biblical preaching. That's that's proof texting, and it's preaching my agenda. But if scripture shapes the agenda of the message and shapes the delivery of the message, that's biblical preaching that I want to value. I do not think that has to solely be um, uh, verse by verse, word by word exposition. I, I probably mostly do verse by verse, word by word exposition, or at least verse by verse exposition. But I think ultimately, um, scripture is conveyed in different forms, and often the genre of the scripture determines how we communicate that scripture as well. So I, I would say I do want to see a reemphasis on biblical preaching in those churches, and it's interesting. You see that even in churches that in the 80s you would look at and say, well, you know, they're really trying this secret thing. They're uh, they're trying this, uh, you know, this, they, they, even those churches are now saying, maybe we need to get a little more text-driven. And there's always exceptions, you know, where, where, and, and some of them are very prominent on television, and I, I just shake my head. But I, I think ultimately more and more Christians, and even some unbelievers, are saying, you know, tell us what that book says, and we can learn more from that book than necessarily the five things you thought about that were really relevant to us today. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I think it's a good thing. I think part of the problem is we create a straw man when we say this is the only way we can be faithful to communicating preaching. And that straw man, I think, disempowers people from biblical preaching because they say, well, I don't know that I can do that, but I can preach the word. And I, I want them to preach the word. And is there a particular way that one should preach in a sort of missional way, if that makes sense? Do you see preaching uh, itself as being missional? You know, is that, or put it this way, is it is it a context in which are you when you're preaching, are you aiming to see people saved through the preaching? Um, you know, I, I do think that what what I what I want to do is to I, I I'm not uh, I'm not a seeker driven guy. The whole Willow Creek thing, and I think that a lot of people uh, have really uh, have lied about them, and I don't want to be that guy. I, I think uh, I'm not I'm not there theologically. But I think they love Jesus, and they're genuinely trying to do some 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 stuff to reach people. But I'm not there seeker-driven wise. Um, seeker-sensitive, I think, has been loaded up a lot of baggage. I like the idea that my preaching would be seeker-comprehensible. Mm -hmm. um, I want to I want seekers to understand what I'm saying. I want to generally preach to believers, but I do try in every message to uh, to put in. I don't. Here's I never want to preach a sermon that wouldn't be true if Jesus had not died on the cross. And then secondarily, if I'm going to say that you can only do this through Jesus dying on the cross, I want to present how people might respond to the work of Christ on the cross. And so, so I, do, do, I do present that every time that I preach, uh, but every sermon is not an evangelistic message. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I generally preach to believers in such a way that unbelievers can overhear and say, all right, I get that, but then I remind them at the end, well, you can't live that without Jesus. And so that's kind of the approach I take. I don't know that it's perfect. I, I'm certainly not the world's greatest, greatest preacher. Um, and, and I will tell you that where I preach now, I preach differently than where I preached in New York and Pennsylvania. And part of the reason is, part of the reason I've changed some of my views of preaching, but also part of it is here I'm preaching to a culture that has people who attend a church much more frequently. I preach at a church um, that's, uh, gosh, I don't know how many years, decades and decades old, uh, uh, has over 3,000 people attending, and I, I'm, 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 I'm what's called an interim pastor, where I'm filling in for a, while they're searching for a pastor, and yet these people have been in church together for a long time, and so I'm coming in, number one, as an outsider, but number two, into a culture that's much more familiar with Scripture. When I, when I was in Pennsylvania or in New York, and even the church we planted in Atlanta, if I got up and said, you remember the story of Moses, they would not remember the story of Moses. At the church I'm on now, there's a lot more that I can say and assume that I couldn't say and assume in a more uh, unchurched context. So I do think, and, and is that missional preaching? In a sense it is, is that I communicate in a way that my audience can understand and I take into account where they are uh, when I communicate God's Word to them. Well, that's interesting. There's a verse that, um, that really got to me a few years ago, actually, uh, in Acts, where it just says something like, they spoke in such a way that many believed. Are you familiar with that verse? I think I can't. I, exactly it, 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 clicked, it clicked out there when you said that. Oh, it, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it says something like this, um, and I'm probably paraphrasing slightly, but it, it says they spoke in such a way that many believed. 
Oh, wow. And I found that quite an interesting verse. You know, it made me think, hmm, is there a form of preaching that we're looking for? I know Piper, for example, um, said that one of the reasons he thinks a lot of people, you know, uh, are dismissing preaching today is that they've never really heard real preaching as it should be. I I don't know what you think about that, but I I found that quite challenging. Yeah, I I, I think I'm, I mean, I I would, I could listen to Piper all day. Um, You know, I preach for 40 to 45 minutes Mm -hmm. a week. Um, I try to dig through the scripture. I try to make it applicable. And I guess for me, you know, I just, I see the impact of both churches I've attended as, as the non-pastor, you know, I, since I work in a, in a research role, and when, and when I've been able, had the privilege of opening God's Word and preaching, it just seems to me that, I look at the scriptures, it seems so normative, and then I look in the lives it seems, of people, it seems so important and impactful. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't get that. Now, I, I, think, I think for some people, they, in some churches, you know, the worship is like warm up to the preaching yeah. and and, and so I think that maybe just a, a reaction to that is that some people have de-emphasized the other aspects of corporate worship. But I, so I, let's emphasize those. But let's not de-emphasize the essential nature of preaching. It's I think it's a mark of a biblical church. But let's just continue to bring worship to that uh, to the forefront. That people encounter God in worship, and then they encounter God in the Word. And that's the language I use. I I like our church service to be focused on worship and the Word. That that's kind of our focus. Yeah. So that's really modern, huh? <laughs> worship in the yeah, world. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. If that's particularly cutting edge. You know, I, I think uh, I think cutting edge is uh, is often overrated. Um, you know, you can do those trappings. You know, the way you sing, the 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 even the what some tools you use. I'm I'm very pro technology when I communicate. Um, but ultimately, it boils down to it's worship and word. That's that's and there are certain commanded elements in scripture. We publicly read scripture. We you know, we, we, we communicate the Word of God, but, but I like to do it in very innovative and creative ways. So there's a, a biblical, biblical mandate to live out in a cultural context. Yeah, and I guess that's really important, isn't it? I know some people look at, at some of these uh, ministers and think, oh, I'm not sure I like that style or whatever. But actually, sometimes the style is about the culture in which they're living in, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I think ultimately that to say that style defines good preaching is really a very ethnocentric statement. I think good biblical preaching in an African-American context is very different than good biblical preaching in an inner, uh, in, in an inner city Anglo context or an inner city Latino or, you know, there, there, are, there are cultural values that come along. And I think many preachers are just naive. They, they just think, well, if I just open the Bible behind the sacred desk and just do what I do everywhere else, it'll be able to, to, to communicate and teach the Bible well in those contexts. And I, I think ultimately that's that's a failure to understand the missional context that we're in, um, and so so I, I think it's that I think we need to be very cautious about that. And I, when I hear things like you know contextualization is is uh, you know, the way you communicate is bad, you just preach the word, you don't need to worry about that. I I, I think that's a mistake, and I think it, it could hurt the mission of and uh, and yeah. forward advance of the gospel. It's interesting though what you're saying, isn't it? Because this whole idea of contextualization because there's always going to be some kind of cultural baggage in whatever you do as a church isn't it i mean a church yeah. in a sense has its own culture i suppose doesn't it um, oh very much so it, i mean it, it's it's a three it's a it's a three culture situation you got the church you got the church culture you've got the culture you're trying to reach and then you have a biblical culture that often there's a culture in scripture which that you have to have to explain and so yeah i mean there's 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 very much there's a lot of cultural dynamics and i think a lot of pastors and a lot of theologically minded people tend to be a little bit unaware of that. Or what they've done is they've seen such bad examples of it. They've seen where people in the name of reaching the culture have become very, uh, I don't know, very schlocky, very, uh, very, you know, just, it's almost embarrassing to see it, that they say, oh, it must be bad. The best thing is, is not to care about culture. But I don't think you can do that and, and, and really look to the record of the New Testament and not see that they cared about culture and in the way they both communicated and even somehow the worship services were were structured. There were normative things that took place in different cultural contexts. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because I think sometimes people who are kind of critical of some of the whole missional thing, 
you know, they focus in on this idea of contextualization, don't they? I think it's all about, I don't know, wearing tattoos or something, you know? Yeah. Well, I, ha I have no tattoos. Um, and so yeah, I did I, notice that, um, or at least not on your face. It did, anyway. <laughs> well, there's one right here. Um, the, actually, that's just a birthmark. But, um, and, and, but, you know, ultimately, for me, I don't, I, don't, I don't see, and I wouldn't teach, that contextualization is that necessarily you, uh, it's being cool and trendy. I, I think part of the challenge with contextualization is people often talk about it, um, particularly young pastors, are cool and trendy. And so people think that's what contextualization is. But if you're, I mean, if you're if you're pastoring or planning a church in, in Dubuque, Iowa, um, you know, being missional and contextual in that setting is not a tattoo and, and you know, jeans with holes in them and blonde spiky hair and an earring. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, so I think ultimately, I, I think what happens is a lot of pastors across North America, and maybe it's true in, the, in, in your context as well, but they go to a conference and they see a really cool, edgy uh, pastor. And what happens is and that pastor is you know, invited to speak because he's at a cool, edgy church in a cool, edgy place, when the reality is most of the pastors are not in a cool, edgy place. And what happens is they end up uh, hearing this and they end up planning a church in their head, not in their community. They say, I want to be like this person. And so they go back to Selma, Alabama, or to, or, you know, or to rural Vermont, uh, you know, and, and what happens is they, they've gotten a sense of, I, I call it demographic lust and community envy. They're envying the community in, in Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, or Manhattan, and really God's called them to fall in love with rural Vermont, and that's not the same world. And, yeah. and I think, you know, John Knox said of Scotland, give me Scotland or I die. I think you've got to cry out to God and say, God, you know, give me Detroit or I die, and I'm going to engage that. I'm going to be biblically faithful, culturally relevant counterculture there, which looks different. I don't care the way they did it in, in you know, Orlando. I care what's the Bible teach and how do I live out what the Bible teaches in Detroit. And I think that's, I think that's key. So I think the danger is, is we fall in love with models rather than falling in love with the mission. And the models we see at these conferences, um, I mean, they're always, I mean, that, they're, they're cool and trendy. That's why they get invited to the conferences. And, and so, so I, I think ultimately the challenge is, is for us to do biblically faithful ministry where God has sent us, not where God has sent some well-known preacher or communicator. Very good, very good. I, I suppose then the other question I've got for you, um, going back to something you said quite early on, is that obviously when people are wanting to be culturally relevant, I think is the word you're using, um, you can, you know, if you're, let's say you're living in, you know, a monocultural area, it's very easy to do that. And, you know, you have a target culture and, and sometimes actually even within a monocultural area, you can, you know, people hone down even more, don't they? And there's a lot of talk in church growth about that, isn't there? About having a target in mind. And if you, you know, if you want, um, I don't know, young white arty people, well, you better make sure you've got plenty of that kind of music in your church, all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's fine up to a point. But my question is, how do you do that if what you're trying to do is build a, a cross-cultural church or a multicultural church, which you talked about at the beginning, said one of your early churches was multicultural. Uh, and I just wanted to pick your brains a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, it's much more difficult. I mean, the reason that people do not see many multicultural churches because most churches are not willing to invest to be multicultural churches. As a matter of fact, most churches that say they're multicultural really aren't. What they are is they're multiracial. They have people, um, let's say you're in Los Angeles and there are Latinos and, and, uh, and African Americans, um, you know, Anglos and, uh, and Asians all together and they, they work together, they shop together, they go to the same movies, they go to the same context, and then they go to church together. Well, they're the same culture, they just look different. Multicultural is much harder because Asians lead in a different way than Anglos do. African Americans tend to communicate a different way. Europe, Europe Germans communicate in different ways than, than, than people from Great Britain. And so the, the challenge is not to force everyone into one culture. Now, the church we planted in the inner city, I, I would say that there were some cultural differences, particularly between the Latino community and the others. But the Anglo, African American, and Native American uh, which was, and, it's, and we're primarily, we're very similar in the inner city because they're all there, they're all poor, they're all multi-generational poor, um, and so there were some cultural commonalities. The Latino community was probably different. We ended up starting a, a Spanish-speaking Bible study than a, than a Latino church. Um, but I do think, you're right, there is a big movement, on, I, I, I use the term focusing rather than targeting, there's a big movement to focus on a certain group. 
And, and how do you do that when you want to reach more than one group? Well, I think there has to be a, some reflection. And part of what you have to reflect on is that it is true that lost people will be most likely be reached by people who are similar to them. Uh, I mean, that's, that's not a shocking bit of news. If, if, if I'm Haitian, I'm most likely going to uh, hear the good news from another person who is Haitian. I'm most likely going to be incorporated into a Haitian congregation. That's not a surprise. I, I think the challenge is, is to recognize that as we represent the kingdom of God, where men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather around the throne, and we're supposed to be this sign and this instrument of the kingdom of God, if our churches look Anglo and our churches look Latino and our churches are all separated, I think that's a harm to our witness. So I think we need to recognize that it is harder. I, I wrote an article on this for Evangelical Missions Quarterly called uh, Multicultural Church Planning Teams, The Promise and the Peril. I think we need to recognize there's peril. It is harder. If you, so if you, have, um, if you have three church planners to come to London to plant a church, and they're of three different ethnicities to start with, what, what happens is, is you already have now three people trying to learn each other's cultures so they can, you know, can, can be in harmony and be on unity. And then what happens is you go into London and you want to plant a church among three cultures. Well, now you've got three more cultures to consider. And so what happens is, and the numbers here, you know, you get all these different cultures, you've got these dozens and hundreds of interactions. And so I think it's just, there has to be a, a, a realism that comes, and I don't see many people saying, well, we're going to be multicultural. And they go out and do that, and then they're not multicultural. And then they're like, well, why aren't we? We said we were going to be. Well, it's much more than we said we're going to be. You need to learn the way people think. You need to, uh, you need to recognize that there are parts of every culture that we reject, parts of every culture that we adapt and parts of every culture that we adopt and as we as we do ministry. And then what happens is we've got to figure out how to do those together. So it's it's a lot harder, but I think it's worth the effort. I, I've been in churches, I've planned churches that were multicultural, some that were not, because some because of the context where we were. So I think it's worth the effort because it really reflects what the kingdom of God looks like. Well, you know, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I just looked at my watch. We've been talking for like an hour. Um, wow. So I, I don't know if anyone's still listening by now. I hope they are. <laughs> but uh, thanks very much. Just before you go, though, um, tell me, are you a family man as well? Uh, or? I am. I have a wonderful wife named Donna. She was my high school sweetheart. We started dating when we were 15, got married at 20. We have three little children, uh, three, six, and, uh, well, almost 10, three, six, and 10. Uh, and they are just a great blessing. Three daughters, and uh, and so I, lo I love my girls. Great. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, you've made it to the end of an episode of Adrian Warnock's Christian Podcast. You must have some stamina. Well done. And if you liked what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe, review, tell all your friends about it. And in the meantime, why not visit adrianwarnock.com?